All right. So, thoughts, questions, things. Are there any non-divorce related questions first? Because <laughs> I imagine that's where we'll spend the majority of our time. So do we have any, anything prior to verse 18? Questions on 14 to 17. All right, 18. <laughs> oh, microphone. There are, oh, there's one right there. Hold on, sorry. There's one right there. I was just going to say, it, it's always been an interesting passage to me. Um, just as you talked about the seemingly disjointed um, topics there over two or three verses. Um, so I thought it was a great explanation of how it ties together. And, and I've, I've studied that before in regards to that because it just it wasn't making sense to me. It's like, well, why is he throwing this in here now? I mean, great teaching, obviously, and it ties into other passages, but it's like, boom, out of the blue, here it comes. You know, there's this verse and that verse. And so anyway, it... it, it uh, it makes sense, and it was that was good. Yep. Well, thank you, Al. Oh, Kevin. Obviously, you have put a lot more thought into this than I have this morning, so this might sound a little rambling. Go for um, it. But bear with me. I'm just curious if maybe verses 16 and 17 is for the reasons of uh, basically telling us that, yes, th that something has changed, this shift has happened. Right. But he's also showing us that we're trying to come up with excuses to... And you said the the forces part, we we're trying to uh, for and everyone forces his way into or it. is being forcefully or urged. You can it's so uh, the yeah. forces for me. I'm curious. Could it be that we are trying to earn or um, make a, make a way for ourselves through the law or obeying the law, legalism, however you want to put it to get our way into or make us look right to get in and then that would follow through with why he brings up divorce and how we're coming up with excuses for how we can get away with this okay that's that's a good question and that so just to reiterate what kevin's suggesting is could force be taken negatively like um violently um uh illegitimately wrongfully trying to enter the kingdom. That is possible, and part of what makes it difficult is you have this passage and the parallel passage in Matthew and nothing else talking like this. Uh, so I'm trying to figure it out from the context. Let, let me pause and say the difference is Greek, we have active and passive voice and verbs, so we have I hit, I was hit. We use helping verbs to show whether something's active or passive. Greek not only is active and passive, but as middle, and middle is, looks the same as passive, and so this is a middle verb, or it's a passive verb, and it would look identical either way. So you legitimately could translate it, is forcing or is strongly urged. Um, the ESV, my ESV has that footnote down here um, under that verse saying, everyone is forcefully urged. 
out of all three options, um, forcing in an illegitimate way, forcing in a good way, urged strongly. I think the context I favor is urged strongly because that's what I've seen Jesus doing. You know, strive to enter the narrow gate, renounce what you have, count the cost. It also works the other way. If you consider, could it be that people are illegitimately trying to enter the kingdom, then I'd expect to find some response to the Pharisees' part, because whatever this is, is new since the advent of Jesus. The law and the prophets are until John, and since then, the kingdom is preached and people are blank, whatever you want to make that to be, to enter into it. So if it's that, I'd expect to see in Luke people since the start of Jesus' ministry, beginning to do something new. But what the Pharisees are doing with their works righteousness seems to antecede that entirely. Like They don't seem to be doing anything new since Jesus is arriving. Jesus is highlighting what they're doing. But I, I don't see anything that shows the Pharisees changing their approach since Jesus showed up on the scene, which is what I'd expect, because that's the contrast. The law and the prophets are until, and since then, the kingdom is proclaimed, and people, everyone is forcing their way in. Um, so it's possible, but it, it seems the least likely to me. But I, I can't say it's, it's not a possibility. Is that getting at what you're getting at? I think so. I would just, obviously you've studied that and, yeah. and know the, the real meaning of the word forced, which. No, it could, it could go both ways. It could, it could, it could, it could be like everything, context. Very seldom is a word it's meaning is so precise it can only mean one thing. So this is a forcing that can, in the right context, be negative, violent. In another context, it's an urgent, you know, I'm getting in that kingdom if there's any way I can get in, and type of thing. Out of all three possibilities, the previous chapters, I think, show Jesus urgently warning people, repent or you, or you two will perish. There's an urgency to Jesus' urging of people. No, seriously, wake up, count the cost, get in. Um, and so because of that, I think out of all three possibilities, the immediate context most fits with people are strongly urged to enter, everyone. And then the emphasis becomes, you're upset because I'm urging everyone without distinction of class, without distinction of ethnic background, I'm urging everyone to enter. But I, I couldn't die on that hill because it could be the active, and even what you're saying is possible as well. It simply comes down to what you think fits the context the best. Well, the flow of it for me seemed like it would work into why he brings up divorce because mm. divorce is obviously very important. If he, it kind of just seems like he throws it in there. Right. Well, it must be because it's rampant as mm. it is today. And from personal reasons, I, we, you, you have to assume that we do kind of go through those processes of trying to figure out Okay, how do you, how do you get out of this, or how how are you not fitting into this whole mold here? Right. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was more flowing to me than this way. But. No, I I got you, I got you. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that the flow is, I you are picking up that I'm doing something new. You are picking up that me welcoming these people is something that the other prophets weren't doing. There's a freeness and openness to my invitation, a lack of ceremony to approach that is new. Agreed, but what I'm doing by no means is in conflict with God's law. If anything, it upholds God's law. By the way, how are you guys doing with upholding God's law? It would be the sort of the shift. While I uphold God's law, not one bit of God's law is gonna drop to the ground. And then I think the connecting thought is, not only do they, 
find loopholes and ways around God's law. Because the, the other part I was picking is if you want to highlight, if you want to highlight that the Pharisees are breaking God's law, why pick this? Especially in the context where God knows your hearts, why not pick coveting or greed or something inward that only God could see? Why pick this? Um, one of the commentators suggested, and I think he's onto something, um, that the, the connection of thought is not only do they let God's word drop to the ground, but their own oaths and their own word, implicit in breaking their marriage vows, are dropping. So you forget being people of God's word. You're not even people of your own word. It would be something along those lines. You, you guys treat so lightly your own oaths and covenants, let alone God's oaths and covenants, that I think, it's, but it's admittedly a tough, tough, text to track the argument, but that's the best I, c- I came up with, so. Donna, a microphone. Oh, he's sitting on it. That's not what microphones are for. I, I didn't quite understand when you said you only knew five people. Sure. Was it five people that Less were okay with the divorce or no, not okay? No, what, what, I was try, what I was trying to do, divorce and remarriage and its particulars is a ridiculously difficult subject. What's difficult about it particularly is harmonizing all that the Bible has to say. Um, so you've got, on a spectrum, you've got people like Charles Ryrie and John Piper who don't see any legitimate grounds to divorce and remarriage. No and grounds? None. And these, these are good, the good guys. Charles Ryrie, John Piper, other people. When I was at Word of Life, that's what they taught. Um, and then you've got, and we, and we can go through the, 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 the and so there's discussion amongst good God-fearing Christians on what the exceptions are. And I'm saying, look, let's bypass that for a second. Whatever you think the exceptions are, um, how many, and I'm just asking everybody, how many non-exception cases are you aware of in real time and space? How many, we all know people who are divorced. We all know people who are divorced and remarried. How many of those within the church would you identify as that person's not permitted to remarry? If that, whoever marries, take the second half. In how many instances would the second half of 18 be true? Whoever marries that divorced person will commit adultery. How many instances are you, are we aware of where that's the case? And in 19 years of being a Christian, I've been aware of five instances where somebody would say, yeah, I can't remarry if I do, that would be adultery. Meaning, out of all the people I know, personally, who are divorced and or divorced and remarried, they would all consider themselves fitting into one exception or another. And the, and the point simply being, if that's the case, and I think that's standard, and maybe, maybe there are people here who are like, no, I know tons of people who are in that position, then without looking at the particulars, surely something's wrong when everybody is the exception and nobody's the rule. That, that's all I'm suggesting. So I was trying to deal with it more from a broad, sweeping overview rather than let's get in here and deal with other one, two, three, four exceptions. Whatever the exceptions are, I think we should agree with statements like this, they would be the exception. And I think by and large in the Western church, that's not the case. That's, that's what I'm, does that make more sense? Well, and, okay. and okay. I've always thought for myself yeah. that I should not remarry because of that verse unless God ever you know, really tells me I should. I, I just have never thought that I should ever remarry. Um, but I don't know anything about the exceptions, and maybe it's a good thing I don't know anything okay. let me let me, let me let me go through those. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying um, the elders have worked through one, and we're in agreement on one. We haven't worked through others, so I can tell you the one we're in all agreement on, and then I can tell you, I can give you a broad spectrum of what 
people who basically hold to the Bible. I mean, obviously there are people just, we do what we want to do, we don't care what the Bible says, we're not gonna worry about that. But amongst people who claim the Bible is authoritative, what texts and exceptions are put forward as possible exceptions? I can just give you the gamut of the, uh, of the, of the options. So you've got, um, you got Ryrie and you got Piper and those guys who hold to no exceptions. And honestly, I was very sympathetic to that view. I'm not of that view, but I probably even as recently as four or five years ago would have identified myself as leaning that way. And um, it, it, the nice thing about that position is it harmonizes everything nicely. You gotta do some, you gotta do some back flips with Matthew, but um, it, it harmonizes nicely with everything else. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, as elders we went through, we absolutely see an exception Jesus uses except, I mean, he uses that literal word in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, most specifically, the exception being um, adultery and immorality in marriage. So, and Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife except for pornea, immorality, commits, and marries another commits adultery. So, the elders are in unison agreement. There is a legitimate exception for divorce and for remarriage. Because notice Jesus treats both as separate issues. So, it's not even just simple, who gets the divorce? There's divorce, and then there's remarriage. Two different issues. That we recognize the Bible teaching, Jesus teaching clearly in Matthew five, Matthew six, and Matthew nineteen, an exception for um, adultery. Okay, so that's that's the one we've we've worked through. We spent the morning, we looked through the text, and what do we do? We all on the same page? We are all on the same page on that. Um, yep. So you would perform a marriage to somebody with that exception? Yes. Yes. Um, beyond that, the next, now, and beyond that, I'm just telling you what within the church are the proposed exceptions. Um, and, and we haven't worked, so I want to be, I want to distinguish, I want to distinguish between, you know, first off, I'm just trying to give you a guided tour of what the proposed exceptions are, and if you guys want to know my thoughts on anything, fine, but these are issues that I don't want to make schisms in the elders or anything. We haven't worked through this. We haven't had instances, I'm sure, when a flesh and blood case comes up, we will get together, God, give us some wisdom, know what to think about this. Um, the next one's going to be 1 Corinthians 7.15, which is um, where Paul, well, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 7.15, oh, 14 and 15, really. And honestly, 1 Corinthians chapter seven is the reason why I'd be scared of preaching through 1 Corinthians. It is such a tough chapter for so many reasons. Um, it intimidates me. Uh, part of the reasons are he's, resp- starting in this part in Corinthians, he's responding to their letter. So you look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so already we're at a disadvantage because we don't have their letter in front of us. So we've got to try to reconstruct the questions they're asking Paul by the answers he's giving, right? See, up until seven, he's responding to a report given to him by members from Chloe's household. He references them in chapter one. So here, Paul is now answering a letter. Apparently, people from Chloe's household brought with them a letter with questions. And, and so Paul will, uh, you can see in 725, he moves on to the next topic, now concerning. And so he's, he's moving along. Um, See how 7.1 begins now concerning, and then 7.25 now concerning? At least that's how my translation does it. And that's how we pick up when he's moving along in the topics of the letter they wrote to him. So, but in 7, we'll pick it up in 12. Then you get this wonderful sentence. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, 
<laughs> now, what does that mean? I'll tell you what I think that means. I think this holds true through 1 Corinthians 7. Some have suggested Paul's just giving his opinion here, which is odd, <laughs> and still is gonna run afoul. Is God then, given the doctrine of inerrancy, giving his opinion, or is God telling us what is? I think what Paul's doing is distinguishing between, in this section, those teachings on marriage, because 1 Corinthians 7 is entirely devoted to marriage and celibacy and those questions, between Jesus' teaching that you can verify through the many witnesses who saw and heard him, and those things that Paul as an apostle is bringing to the table by the insights given to him by the Spirit that cannot be verified. So when he says, the Lord, not I, um, verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. I, I would take that to mean Paul saying, look, Jesus said this, not me. You can go verify Jesus said this. And we get the Gospels, and sure enough, Jesus does indeed teach that. What does Jesus teach about a woman married to an unbelieving man, or vice versa? Nothing, nothing directly. So when Paul gets to that topic, what do you do with, with an unequally yoked marriage? I think all he means when he says in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, this is my own, on my own apostolic authority, this is not something you can confirm through the earthly ministry of Jesus. Okay? But that's the first tricky bit right there. It's just Paul's introduction to this section. Then you get, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce her. He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, her children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, that's a whole other question. On what sense is an unbelieving spouse made holy? We're going to step over that because that's not what we're focusing on. I'm just showing you more of the difficulties in the section. Difficult questions to answer um, working through this. But then you get to 15. But... If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, keep, keep your Bible open here. So under this, this is probably the second most, um, and I'm trying to present the, the exceptions, proposed exceptions in decreasing order of biblical certainty. So I think Matthew 19 is, is the most sure and certain. And this would be the second most. And so according to this view, Paul is here um, granting permission to be divorced um, and that the assumption is wherever the scripture would grant divorce, remarriage is assumed. That's the way, it's, say for instance, John MacArthur, who takes that view, thinks he says basically that even though Paul doesn't mention remarriage because he grants legitimate divorce, remarriage is assumed. That's the argument, okay? Um, we elders haven't worked through this. I'm not as sold on that, simply because um, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7 mention remarriage in this chapter. And so if you look at verse um, 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. So part of what gives me pause is he does mention remarriage in this chapter. And when he mentions it, he mentions it in a way that doesn't grant remarriage to the case in verse 15. So, into that, so I'm, not, I'm not certain. This is a tough, one of the tough passages I'm kind of on the fence with. We haven't worked through it, just telling you what I think. But under that view, what Paul is simply saying to the believing husband or wife whose unbelieving spouse is divorcing them would be to say, sign the papers. 
you don't need to go track them down to the ends of the earth and make this work. God has called you to peace. And that's all he's saying. Nothing more. You're, God is not, it's not your fault. God is not gonna judge you because you couldn't hold your marriage together with your unbelieving spouse. They left, be left. That's what, anyway. So that, I think, is a, is a viable reading of the passage. Um, and, I, and I'm not 100% on it, but that's, that's the next proposed exception. And guys like MacArthur, um, I'd say probably the majority of the conservative church is persuaded this is a legitimate exception for remarriage as well as divorce. Certainly, Paul's saying, you're not doing anything wrong, and you're not guilty of anything if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, deserts you, divorces you. <laughs> yeah. You're not saying that's a, a reason to remarry, though, if your I'm unbelieving spouse leaves I'm, you. What I'm saying is, that is the, that's the question, and that's a question that I'm not fully persuaded of. I, I, need to, I would need to work through it more. Right now, I would defer in caution to saying no, but I wouldn't say that with certainty. I wouldn't say that with strong conviction. I'd say I'm not certain. And I'm listing people who are certain. Guys like John MacArthur would say, no, absolutely. If, if this is your case, you're free to remarry. And so that I'm saying, John MacArthur says that. Uh, yeah, Grace Community Church, I looked for it this morning. I have a copy of it. That on key doctrinal issues, they release these little pamphlets called The Elders' Perspectives On, and one of them is divorce and remarriage. And they've got a little four-page document. I'm sure I could find it online. That's what the elders at Grace Community Church believe about divorce and remarriage. And they, they hold that desertion by an unbelieving spouse is, MacArthur, I think the quote is, wherever divorce is legitimately granted, remarriage is assumed. That's, that's MacArthur's argument. Um, okay. So I'm not totally sold on that, but I'm not sold totally against it. Like I said, it's something I would need to, to work with more. Yeah. If the unbelieving spouse leaves yeah. you. Yes, be left. I don't see that a reason. It would be only if he was unfaithful, right? But they're saying if the unbelieving... What I'm trying to resolve, what I'm trying to avoid doing on something as complicated as this is pronounce a judgment on my own apart from the rest of the elders. So I'm admitting my own, like, yeah, I, I, I have questions. I'm not sold. I'm not convinced that this grants remarriage. I'm not convinced it doesn't. I'm just not convinced it does. But I don't want to try to solve it here and now in the next 20 minutes. I guess my belief is... Um, yes that if God wants me to remarry, he'll show me that. Because I, I just look at it like... Um, Donna, you certainly do no wrong by staying single. Paul makes that clear in this passage. You certainly do no wrong staying single. So, so whatever is the case, you're good. <laughs> that I think everyone could agree with. Okay. Like, again, not trying to solve the problem, but any questions on this? Now, this one becomes interesting because... Um, well, okay, keep your thumb here because people will use, people who hold to 715 being an exception for remarriage will try to shoehorn through it a number of other topics, but I'll get to that next. The next passage used is 2 Corinthians 5. Again, this is held by Grace Community Church, John MacArthur. This is their publicly published position. Um, and, and in my mind, this is a much weaker argument than even 1 Corinthians 7.15. And that is 2 Corinthians 5, um, verse um, 17. Which I think we need to pick up a little earlier. Let's pick it up in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he goes on through there. The argument is this, that if your divorce took place prior to you becoming a Christian, then part of that all things becoming new is you can now remarry. I think that's a weak argument. Here's why. If you're divorced, if you're a divorced person, but your divorce took place while you're an unbeliever, and since that time you have become a Christian, so, you know, Joe, John Doe got divorced 10 years ago as an unbeliever. I'm, 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 let me speak very clearly. So far, I have yet to see a compelling case. I am unpersuaded by the argument. I am, let me explain why. It would seem very odd to me that only some covenants get annulled by becoming a Christian. You see, the whole argument of Jesus is you're committing adultery if you remarry, which indicates what? The original marriage is still in force. Do, well, let's pause. Let's, let's, let's ask um, more foundational questions. Can only Christians get married? So, unbel- okay, microphone. No, no, and Donna, thank you. You're, this is great. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, if, I, if you think I'm, t- I got a lot of caffeine in me, so this is, you're, you're asking great questions. So, Unbelievers can get married. Unbelievers can enter into the covenant of marriage, right? Okay. So you don't have to be a Christian for it to be a real marriage. Okay. So John Doe was really married. John Doe really had a marriage covenant as an unbeliever, yes? Okay. Jesus' statement about remarriage being adultery assumes the marriage covenant is still in force even though legally it's been declared broken, right? Otherwise, adultery doesn't make sense. You marry this divorced person, you commit adultery, is assuming the original marriage covenant is still intact. How does John Doe becoming a Christian suddenly dissolve that marriage covenant? That's what I don't understand. The covenant wasn't real to him because it's just a legal marriage. Here's here, and again, these are the issues the elders have not worked through. I'm just doing my position on. Okay, does that mean if John Doe is married and he becomes a Christian, he's suddenly not married? That dissolves his marriage covenant. No, no, let's say he's not divorced. John Doe is married, becomes a Christian. Is he suddenly not married? Or does this only dissolve some covenants? That's my problem with it. It's, pick, it's picky and choosy about which covenants it dissolves and which covenants remain in force. Now, there may be a great explanation for that, and if I study that and work through it, somebody may have a great answer to that. The reason why I'm currently not persuaded is that's my objection is, how can it only eliminate the inconvenient covenants? Now, there may be a fantastic answer to that. I'm just saying currently I'm unpersuaded because currently that objection to me seems like a big one. But as, as, as notable figures as John MacArthur and Grace Community Church disagree with me on that, so I don't want to sound dogmatic and bind people's consciences. I'm giving my sort of opinion. I'm mostly trying to give you a guided tour through the exceptions. If you want to know my current, where I'm currently at, that's where I'm currently at. Like I said, the elders haven't worked through this. I don't want to bind anyone's conscience with where I'm currently at. Currently, I'm unpersuaded. That's me. Donna, let us keep going. Okay, well, yes. I think there's a lot of marriages like mine where I became a believer and my husband did not. Mm. And yes. then um, when my husband left me, I 
I go by the scripture, I don't think I should remarry. And I don't even know if my husband was unfaithful during my marriage. I mean, afterwards, yes, but, you know, I don't know that for sure. So I'm convicted to think that I should not remarry. And, um, but I think, okay, you have two people that are married, and they get divorced, and if that person, like, remarries and then becomes a believer, that would be okay, but he couldn't, if he became a believer after he got divorced, uh, I'm saying this wrong, if, okay, after he gets divorced and he becomes an unbeliever, I mean a believer, then you don't think he should remarry then? Let me, let me, let me try to come at it from a slightly different vantage point. Here's the question. What, apart from death, ends covenants? Because the question to me is, is this person still covenantally bound to another person by marriage? Even though the law of the land has declared them to be not married, even though they're not cohabitating, are they in God's eyes married? God, what God made, what God has joined together, no one separate. That's the question you gotta ask. Now Jesus says, in the case of adultery, that marriage covenant is broken, and therefore the person can remarry, okay? So I'm just looking at the person saying, does this person still, are they still covenantally yoked with another person? Yes or no, and on what basis do we determine the covenant is no longer in force? To say that when they became a Christian, their covenant disappeared seems odd to me. And I think that's what you'd have to conclude to argue that. And then you'd be left with the problem, why doesn't, why, why John and, and Mary get married, they're both unbelievers, John becomes a Christian, why didn't his becoming a Christian annul that marriage? So why, does it, why, is it, why is becoming a Christian only selective in annulling some covenants but not others? That's the question. I guess I just think about when you become a Christian, you're a different person, you're a new person. Yes. But I never thought about it the way you're saying that if, if they're married and they get divorced and then becomes a believer and then he still shouldn't. So I didn't ever look at it that way. So think, think about it from the perspective of a plaintiff, right? Because here in, in, in Luke, the person commits adultery against who? Against the original spouse. So here this woman gets divorced by her husband. Bob divorces Mary. Bob's an unbeliever. Mary has been wronged. Bob becomes a Christian, then remarries someone else. And, and, and Mary shows up to the wedding and says, wait a second, you, you promised me you're, you're committing adultery against me. And Bob says, no, I'm not. I became a Christian. How does she still not have that? Leg- now, you're, to make this to say that that's okay would just say if Bob hadn't become a Christian, Mary would have a legitimate beef. Mary could say, you're committing adultery against me in this act of marriage. You're, you're violating your covenant to me. You're adultering. But if Bob had become a Christian, she couldn't say that. That, that just seems odd to me. Now, that, maybe there's a good answer for that, but that's, that's the piece I'm looking, I'm looking at is, is there a covenant in place? If, if Jesus... <coughs> Jesus' whole, when he gets asked about divorce and marriage, it's interesting. The only passage I'm aware of that deals with marriage from the point of view of oath-breaking is Malachi. We read that this morning. You, break, you divorce your wife by covenant. When Jesus gets asked the question, he doesn't go to that. He does not go to, you made a promise, now keep it. He goes to Genesis 2, what God has joined together that no one separate. He points out that in real marriage, believers are unbelievers. There is a work of God where two become one, where God does something, and who are we to try to undo that? So I'm, I'm looking at remarriage from the question of, if God still says they're one, 
then, then we can't have this person remarry. <laughs> and Jesus tells us when God can say they're not one anymore. Other than that, Jesus says when he's asked, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So that, I'm just looking at it like, is this person still in a one relationship with somebody or not? And that, that's the question I'm trying to answer when I'm trying to evaluate, is person X free to remarry? What's the answer to that? That what, what is Jesus really When do they not become one? <laughs> just, is there an answer to that? Is it no? Or well, once you've got you to work, become no, one, that's well, you've it? Got to, what you've got is the baseline. Passages like Luke 16, 18, um, Mark has, an, has another similar statement, so the baseline, where the no exception is given. This seems to be the norm, which then, to my mind, says, if you want to argue the exception, the burden of proof is on that argument. We don't assume people are qualified to remarry. We assume the status quo, no, they're not. Otherwise, passages like Luke 16, 18 mean nothing. If, Luke, if, if, if divorce remarriage is such that this is rarely the case, Jesus is not being honest. This has got to be baseline. Baseline is whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries a divorced person commits adultery. Baseline, now we've got to argue burden of proof on the person arguing it, making the case, here's a legitimate exception. So I'm starting from the point of view, no, unless persuaded otherwise. Now, that's where I was at before right, this right, morning okay. and I'm, I'm okay. sorry if I'm taking no, it away no, no. from somebody I else I figured and planned on spending most of this morning talking about this let me, let me, we can come back to any particular one let me finish working through there's only one or two more proposed exceptions and then we can I'm just sorry it takes so much no, time no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. so we've got adultery we've got um, desertion by an unbeliever we've got I wasn't a Christian when the divorce happened but I am now and then there's a whole range of ones that people try to shoehorn into 1 Corinthians 7.15. What will, you will find particularly troubling, good grief, we're opening a can of worms here, and I will speak very carefully. Let me preface them out to say, these are really tough matters, and I'm gonna challenge you to try to think biblically, because I know what I want the answers to these questions to be, and I suggest, and I think, what I would like the answer to be is similar to what you want the answer to be, but what I want the answer to be doesn't matter, is what has God said. So here's my next question. We assume, you gotta be really careful when I say this, I am not aware of texts that explicitly grant divorce for physical abuse. I'm not aware of that. I'd love to find one, I'd love to hear an argument for one. Where people argue and try to get it in is once you grant desertion as a category, then we end up with monetary desertion emotional desertion, physical desertion, and that's how all forms of mistreatment then get argued in to becoming exceptions for divorce and remarriage. So has your husband gambled away the money? He's left you financially. It, has, your, has your husband um, physically mistreated you? He's physically abandoned you. Has your husband, and, and so on. That's the argument that's made by people who try to make biblical arguments. Tough, tough issue, but the question to think about, and, and please don't shoot the messenger, is when you think, okay, back up biblically, divorce for, for physical mistreatment, um, where are you gonna go? Now, I'll, 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 let me make one other caveat. God has put Caesar to restrain evil and bear the sword. We live in a country where if a husband mistreats a wife, she can call on Caesar and Caesar will bear the sword for her, and I say, do that. Where this becomes way tougher is when you're dealing in countries where that's not the case. Uh, Muslim majority countries where if a wife converts, she can be put to death, honor killings, things like that. What do you do there? So I, I for, would absolutely encourage someone um, to, Caesar makes it very clear. Caesar wants to know if husbands or wives are beating each other. Caesar says, I, I, I want to know. You can be in trouble for not reporting it. 
And so we submit to Caesar and let Caesar do what Caesar's gonna do. And we live in a country where Caesar's gonna bear the sword and protect and punish. And I think that's wonderful. But, um, if it's like, but when you're dealing with other edge cases that are difficult, biblically, where do you go? And I'm not aware. The closest passage I'm aware of is First, first Peter 3, 1. And it ain't, you're not gonna like it. Um, go, to, go to First Peter. First Peter 3, 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. You say, okay, how does that imply anything? Well, likewise, like what? Right before it, you have the crucifixion of Jesus, and right before that, you have masters who beat their slaves for no reason. So take your pick on what the likewise is. But the, the, this is, I'm not, and this doesn't implicitly bring violence into the picture, but it's the only passage I'm aware of that's most open to it. If you, if you say like, just like slaves, because the whole flow of, the, flow of this section um, starts in 2.13, um, where the head verb for being subject shows up. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he's gonna go case by case. Verse 18, servants be subject. The example of Jesus is given. Then 3.1, likewise wives be subject. And all the way down to verse seven, likewise husbands. So we're going through this ordering of human institutions and the ordering of them. So, the principle is, look at 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. God is pleased when his people wrongly endure sorrows. For what credit is it if when you are beaten and for it and endure, you endure, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. To what? To suffer unjustly. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were all straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd of your, and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. If there's any passage that has it in view, and I can't say dogmatically it does, this would be the closest. So it's, it's, it's tough. Um, I've never, I'll, I'll say this candidly, I've never firsthand dealt with uh, cases of marital abuse. Um, I've dealt with them secondhand. People dealing with them have, have, have you know, run them by me, stuff like that. And I, my initial position would be get Caesar involved get Caesar involved, let him bear the sword, let him punish the evildoer, let him do that. And in our country, I believe Caesar is very eager to do that. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure biblically where you're gonna turn. So it's, it's a real, really difficult topic. Now the people who want to make a biblical case will then shoot, will then try to fit it into desertion. The problem I have with that is the Greek's really simple and really clear. It literally just means to leave. It's not even the divorce, it's leave. So literally what 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, if the, unbelieving husband, if the unbelieving partner departs, be departed. Don't let yourself be departed. Um, 
which seems odd to then do to make fit in. Well, he's departed you financially. He's departed you emotionally. I mean, what this basically turns into is now anyone can divorce their spouse because whatever it is you don't like that your spouse did, they've departed me. You know, they're not meeting my emotional needs. They're not whatever. It, it would just there's, it would seem to me you'd open a floodgate that would have no way of reining it in. Who's to say what isn't departure if departure doesn't mean physically leaving? You know, um, but some people go there. That's not a place. Just, I've used Grace Community Church as an example. They don't go there. They don't broaden it out like that. But um, but that's where people who tr- would attempt to do that go there would would try to fit that into that. So, Kevin, <laughs> this is tough stuff, by the way. This is, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm on the uh, other side of this now, but do you, uh, would you think it would be safe to say that whether it's divorce or remarriage, it, it, is, it is our emotions, selfish desires that lead to either one? Not necessarily. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me give you a case. Let me give you a case of what I mean. Um, on the spectrum of people I'd be most sympathetic for, the person I'd be most sympathetic for, you've got a young wife, young mother, she's got four or five kids, and her unbelieving husband has taken off, who knows where he is, he's left the state. Has he committed adultery? We don't know. He's abandoned her. He's left her. Now this woman might say, my kids could use a father. Not just selfish motives could get her to desire remarriage. It doesn't just have to be her own desires being met, but it could be the good and the stability that would provide for her kids. I'd be very sympathetic with that. So I wouldn't want to say the only reasons we want to do this are selfish, because in that case, I can think of plenty of non-selfish reasons why that woman would desire to remarry. So I think many of the desires to justify these things are selfish, but I wouldn't want to say all of them. I can think of at least a few instances where I could say well, no, those, those needs could be met some other way, though. Sure. No, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not going so far as to say those provide a um, a sufficient reason. She's not going to remarry just for those reasons. No, I, no. He, agreed. I, I was just trying to answer your statement. That the reasons are selfish. Well, they don't have to be. I, well, I'll grant many of them are, and probably most are in most cases. I just don't want to. Now, does that give her a sufficient reason? She needs to back it up biblically. I'm just saying she could have non-selfish reasons why she wants this thing. But there are plenty of things that I can want for righteous reasons that I'm not going to get. So just because someone has right reasons to want something doesn't automatically guarantee they have the right to do it. It just means that all their motives aren't corrupt. That's, that's all I'm saying. Well, when you go into abuse and other yeah. reasons, it's, it's what we think humanly as our personal rights or right. uh, what makes us feel good or... Um, whatever it's it's I, it seems like it, it it drills down to our personal desires or mm. a, you know how we feel about it well let me let me take what you just said a step further part of part of the problem I think is um, we uh, partly for good reasons partly for bad reasons I think are really hesitant unwilling and find impossible and by we, I mean the American church, to look somebody in the face and tell them that until your spouse dies, you're going to be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. 
That's what Christ's calling you to. That for many people, such a word would sound like a death sentence. And we have no idea how to say that to people. We um, don't know how those people, especially in a culture where people are so autonomous and so self-reliant, living on their own, that that would sound like a death sentence to many. So, like, if you go read Grace Community Church's statement from the elders, the the unspoken assumption that they are operating from is that the only reason God would forbid remarriage is in an attempt to save the original marriage. So they actually have at the end, I I really wanted to find it this morning, Um, because as much as I respect John MacArthur, I really was kind of surprised by this one sentence. I'll I'll look it up, dig it up. I had it like underlined and highlighted. But they go through, what if somebody isn't an exception and remarriage isn't a possibility? Um, The person doesn't want to be reconciled. There's a sentence that says, in such cases, the grace of God is operative and with much pastoral counseling and oversight, such a person might be able to remarry. And I just, there's no verse next to it, there's nothing. It's just, because what they're saying is everybody in their view gets to remarry. Either you get to remarry the person you originally married to, or you get to remarry somebody else. But nobody doesn't have marriage as a viable option on their horizon. Because I think it's just too hard, I mean, and we know people. It's not even for ourselves, it's, it's the, the sympathy we have for others. The thought of going to somebody who says, you know, you know think someone in the first century, you know, what does the Lord have for me? I have a desire, I don't think I have the gift of celibacy, I have a passion, I'm lonely, I, I, I yearn for this, and be told, no, that, that's not how God wants you to glorify him. I think that such a word is something that we are unable and unwilling and, and, and lack the stomach, um, partly through sympathy and partly through thinking we know better than God, ever to give. I think part of the reason why I can th- count on my hand five or six people And in every one of those instances, that's the conclusion they come to. No church that I know told them that. No one had the stomach to tell them that. Like, I I praise God for Donna's willingness to consider that. That's awesome that Donna said, yeah, I think that might be me. Um, But I I know of nobody who the church has said, the church leadership said, hey, we're gonna walk with you. We're gonna try to help you bear this. We're gonna help be a family to you. But while while your husband or while your wife remains alive, we don't think you can remarry. Uh, I, I know of nobody in that situation. Um, every, of the five or six people I know, every one of them, that's the conviction they came to on their own. Um, and so that's, that's what's challenging, is, is we, we, don't, we don't have ministry for such people, and so it becomes a vicious cycle. Because we don't walk with such people, when someone considers, might that be where I'm at, they literally just see this wasteland in front of them of suffering and loneliness, and they're like, there's no way on earth I want that, so I'm gonna find some way to, you know, to, 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 to get into an exception. Whereas if we, if we were walking with such people and, and trying to um, help them bear under such a thing, it, it conversely might make it more easier for other people to consider bearing. But that's, that's, to me, what I was trying to make in the message this morning, what makes it clear something's off, is, you know, I've been to some really solid churches. Not one of them, if you went up and said, hey, how do you minister? I mean, you love John MacArthur, go to Grace Community Church, talk to one of their pastors, and they say, look, I'd love to minister to the people who are divorced and not qualified to remarry. How do you guys minister to them? What do you do for them? What type of... Uh, grace and service you give them. That's gotta be a hard place to be. How do you minister to them? They, got, they don't have such a category. They don't. They, they, there is no such category from the top down. There is no such ministry. Um, and that's, something's wrong 
when that's the case. That's, that's all I was trying to make this morning is something's not right. We can work through what the exceptions are, and I'll grant that some of this is complex. But where the Western church is at is clearly far too broad, I think, clearly. If, if there are, I mean, let's make it as simple as possible. The last clause of Luke um, 16, 18. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In what circumstance would we ever say that's true? Forget exceptions. When would that ever be true? It, from the church's viewpoint. It's rare. So, Alex, close us. So, let's say that an unbelieving couple divorces and then they get remarried and then become believers. What do you, and what do, you do at that point? Give me, the, give me the scenario again, please. So, um, Bob and unbelieving, Jane. yep, Bob and who? Bob and Jane. Okay, Bob and Jane, they're unbelievers. They get divorced. They both remarry to other people. Yeah. So now they're married, and then Bob becomes a believer. <laughs> what do you do in that situation? What do you do with two minutes on the clock? Um, you punt and say that's part of the ugliness. Let me, let okay. me make one or two caveats, by the way, before we go. That that's, you're opening a whole other can of worms, Alex. What do you do when you're in messed up scenarios? I want to make a couple caveats. One. Um, some people believe that when illegitimate remarriage occurs, the person's in a perpetual state of adultery. I don't think that holds up biblically. If, you're, if you married illegitimately, you're still married. Um, so Jesus even tells the Pharisees, you marry another, you commit adultery. But you're, he says marry, he doesn't say you go pretend to be married with, you're married. And so I know people who have pleaded not to get married on the other side of getting married. I want your marriage to succeed, I'm praying for your marriage. I don't think you should have got married, but now that you are, you're married. Let's make this thing work as best as we can. That's the first thing I want to say. I don't think, and there are some who argue that they're in a perpetual state of adultery. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, that's the first caveat I want to grant. So the people who are married are married, and God is calling us as the church to want all marriages to succeed that are real marriages, uh, regardless of whether they should have been entered into or not. Now that they're married, okay, let's, let's get on board and try to make this thing work. Um, the next question you've got to ask, though, with one minute to go, is this. Can a person be married to more than one person? You read through the Old Testament, I think the answer you've got to conclude, by can, I mean not ought they, is it possible? Not permissive possible, but like scientifically. I think the answer is yes. David had wives, right? Polygamy is real. It's not it's not you have one wife and four people you pretend to your wife. The Old Testament consistently treats them as wives without any distinction of only McCall is David's real wife and Abigail's not and you know so on. No, they treat them as his wives, Saul's wives. So that, that brings up all sorts of problematic issues then. What happens when someone has, you know, does a Pharisee who divorces his wife and remarries, is he now really technically married to both? And with one minute remaining, I'm not going there, but that's, those, are the, those are the really ugly tough questions that you have to work through. Because what's the point? Oh, Al wants to jump in. Al, the, the chairman of the elders will close us out. So since you're covering all these <coughs> great passages, I wondered if you were going to get to the ever popular one um, that always comes up, and that's Ezra 10. I didn't know if you were ever going to get there um, to Ezra 10 and cover that in this regard or not. Oh, Ezra gets crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Someone found it. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
If reckon, yeah, there, thank you, someone found it. See, it's not me, I'm not, I'm not, this is their public statement. So I, this, sorry, I will, <clears throat> okay. That, that's a t- that it, Ezra is even crazier, because no, Ezra shows up and they've married pagan women and he tells, commands them to go divorce and he bites them and pulls their hair out. He d- go read Ezra, that's what he does, he bites people. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. When I talk about harmonizing everything, <laughs> That's another one of those strange it's, it's jigsaw a very pieces. Passage, always brought up. I mean, always. No, no yes. that's one of those, like, I don't know how to harmonize it all together. That's another one of those, how this jigsaw puzzle piece fits in, I don't know. Let me, for the people on the tape, let me read this and then we will close. So here's the sentence from Grace Community Church. Um, okay. In cases where divorce took place on unbiblical grounds and the guilty partner later repents, the grace of God is operative at the point of repentance. A sign of true repentance will be a desire to implement 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, which would involve a willingness to pursue reconciliation with his or her former spouse, if that is possible. If reconciliation is not possible, however, because the former spouse is an unbeliever or is remarried, then the forgiven believer could pursue another relationship under the careful guidance and counsel of church leadership. Now that's a statement which lets everyone off the hook. And it has no text. That was the one that I'm like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you've just nullified Luke 16, 18. It is never the case that a woman divorced from her husband is, anyway, sorry. But that's, that, thank you for finding that. That's the, uh, that's the one that I was, as I went through and worked through, it was kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? But we're out of time. We can pick this up next week. <laughs> no, they've got a whole multi-page thing, but that was the particular part that I found. Yeah, you can just look it up online. Um, you can look that up online. Grace Community Church, um, the elders' perspective on divorce and remarriage. And I have all the respect in the world for MacArthur and his elders. I'm not trying to slam them at all. I'm saying that here's one of the most conservative, I mean, it's, to give you an idea of how godly men wrestle through this. I mean, I have a ton of respect for Piper, a ton of respect for MacArthur. They differ on this. This is a tough, tough issue. Tough issue to work through. Anyway, God bless. Have a blessed Lord's Day.